We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Hey, maybe we need a sports betting site solely dedicated to the Toronto Maple Leafs so fans could waste their money as well as their time. Oh, come on! Here's Thompson! Get out of here! That's done! What the heck is that? Enough! That's an old joke! We're over it! We're on the golf course now! Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Hamilton today. Love to have you here and uh, participate too. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text 905-645-3221. Uh, join the show. Major Tom, looking for your last word. Love to hear from you. Don't forget, coming up uh, two hours time after the five o'clock news, your chance to play Hammerhead Trivia, Hamilton's favorite game show. And on the line today, a pair of tickets to catch Forge FC versus Vancouver FC coming up this Friday. Very, very easy to win. All you have to do, you know, it's multiple choice, man. How hard can it be? And it's never D. Remember that. All right. Uh, playing the U2 with or without you. You know, a little slow to start the show today. Normally we do something a little bit more, you know, kind of get you, uh, wake you up, that sort of thing. Uh, but with or without you by the, uh, in the, uh, from the Joshua Tree, from U2, 1987, it was their very first number one song. It went to the uh, number one on this day in 1987, and it stayed there for three weeks. And as I mentioned, U2's very first very first number one song off of the Joshua Tree, with or without you. We'll be playing uh, portions of that album coming up over the uh, course of the show in the top hours. Feel free. Love to hear from you, your thoughts. All right. Uh, another jam-packed show. Hope you hang around for it. Lots going on. Yeah, it kind of a sort of a slow, not so slow news day. Uh, the prime minister is still flying around uh, in South Korea and then uh, towards the weekend he- uh, heading off to Japan uh, for the G7 summit there. Going to be fascinating to see what comes out of that. Uh, back here at home, his government um, coming up with bail reforms, which is very bizarre because uh, they did all this when they first came to power. And now appears like they are reversing a lot of this or certainly reforming the bail system in some way. We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. And if you're hoping to travel as you head into this long weekend and it involves WestJet, uh, their pilots are set to strike uh, due to a pay dispute. And uh, that's also uh, going to, it looks like it's going to come to a head on the 24th of May weekend. So be aware of that if you are uh, planning to travel on this uh, long weekend. Yeah, here we go. Getting ready for uh, the first long weekend of the summer of 2023. And uh, a good one. Not, not quite as nice as last week but we'll take it. What the heck? Especially with the extra day off. Uh, Annual pace of inflation rose for the very first time uh, since June of last year with the interest rate uh, now at four, or sorry, the inflation rate sitting at 4.4% up from 4.3%. Normally you think, well, what's a big deal with that? Uh, but it may have something to do, uh, or it may influence rather, the Bank of Canada setting the interest rates coming up a little later on uh, in the month. We'll see what happens with that. Also, uh, this is kind of weird, a growing movement among uh, Gen Zers. That's, am I, I'm a Generation Z, or am I not? No? no yeah? No, right. Uh, anyway, uh, smartphones reverting back to a flip phone from a smartphone. Uh, 
And I'm not sure why they're doing this because this could be like vinyl, right? Just the nostalgia, the idea of something. I remember when my daughter went through this and, and you know, all of a sudden uh, decided she want to, wanted to participate in, in the vinyl revolution. And I said, that's great. She started looking through my milk crates of records and such. And I said, let me uh, set you up this stereo system we got here. You know, the old with the big speakers and the turntable and all that crap. And she's like, no, nah, she had no interest in that. Instead, she's got this like little close and play thing. It's like, what the hell is that? You're listening to the sound through like a two inch speaker here. Um, so again, I'm not sure if all of this is about getting away from technology, getting away from being plugged in all the time, or if in fact, this is just, um, <clears throat> Hey, look, this looks different from what we had. So, or what we have, uh, and therefore that's the attraction. We'll talk about that coming up, uh, a little later on. Also, we've talked at length about, uh, the federal liberal government. I know, <laughs> I'll be nice. Uh, the federal liberal government and how this party that was once left of center is now extreme left of center because they're in bed with the NDP. And now uh, Campbell Clark from the Globe and Mail is writing that, you know, some of the members of the NDP are getting a little tired of uh, the the relationship with the liberals. We'll talk about that with the author of that article coming up uh, a little later on. And as I mentioned, in regard to WestJet, uh, Gabor Lukacs with us uh, to talk about what this could mean for those that are traveling. What rights do you have if, uh, in fact, the airline that you are booked on decides to go on strike? Where does that leave you? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on in the show. Also, and this is a really, you know, I, I don't know who has the answer to this, uh, but obviously situations in regarding the homelessness post-pandemic, the world we live in, life's gotten tough. Life's gotten pretty hard. Uh, and especially for those on uh, the lower extremes of the societal ladder. And we're seeing more and more homeless encampments uh, pop up, uh, an estimated 100 encampments across the city as of uh, the middle of this month. Where do you go from here? Do you design something this way? What, what's the solution? A campground? Uh, and what happens when the snow starts to fly? I'm not sure uh, what the answer is is. Um, uh, but man, I, I'm not sure where you go from here. Uh, once you start having various campgrounds throughout the city to help the homeless. And again, what happens uh, in October, November, December, when the snow starts to fly? Going to talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, Justice Minister David Lametti uh, tabled new net legislation aimed at making it harder for repeat offenders to be granted bail through a handful of targeted criminal code reforms. Uh, again, kind of bizarre after they've spent the last little while opening it back up again. We'll see where it goes, what the solution is, what the happy medium is uh, in all of this as the afternoon progresses. We've uh, noticed that uh, obviously over time, post-pandemic, the world started to change, the economy changing, interest rates start going up again, and, and we're seeing inflation, and as a result of that, the Bank of Canada raising its rates, then sort of held steady for a while as inflation kind of leveled out. Now we're seeing the annual pace of inflation rose just a little bit uh, since the first time it peaked last June, uh, June of last year, rather. 4.4% uh, is what it's sitting at now, only up from 4.3. Does that matter? Is it a sign? Where do we go moving forward? Let's bring in Michael Veal, Professor of Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Centre, and is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
I am. I hope you are too. So 4.3 to 4.4, is this anything to really even talk about? Is it a minor blip? It could have gone either way. Or is this something to think about in the future? I think it's just a minor blip. I am pretty confident that we will see inflation again fall uh, when we get the the May readings, which will actually happen on June 27th. Uh, when we get that measure, I think it's uh, the blip is uh, largely due to the fact that just at the time the Citizens Canada would be measuring this, uh, oil prices went up a little, and that meant gasoline prices went up somewhat. Uh, but since then, I think they settled back down. Uh, we've heard that, uh, obviously, the Bank of Canada is waiting for that sort of sweet spot, about 2% inflation. Is that is that doable in this environment, or is that old school? Well, I don't think that the Bank of Canada is going to raise interest rates soon. Uh, I think that at the moment, they will just wait and see and, and watch the inflation rate go down. I think 2% is, a, is a, a, an ambitious target in the current environment. I think it'll take a while to get there. What is a more realistic target? What what do you think the new norm could be? Well, I think for about the next year, we'll probably be looking at inflation uh, that'll be a little bit higher, so I'd say three, three and a half percent. I think it'll be hard to get it right down to that two percent. One of the reasons that the inflation rate has uh, fallen uh, rapidly recently is that we do these year over year comparisons. So we're comparing to a whole year ago. And basically, the story of inflation was that inflation was really high across the board. Uh, for a while, but then gasoline prices started going down and that brings inflation down. So one of the things is, um, if you're a person who doesn't use much gasoline, um, the inflation rate really isn't coming down for you because still inflation's high for grocery prices and other things for rents. Uh, the people who are, who are experiencing an inflation rate of about 4.4% are people who are consuming uh, a range of products, including gasoline, and gasoline is the product that's fallen. You might not remember this, but uh, I, you know, we're, we might be trying to black it out. But about a year ago, gasoline prices were touching two dollars a liter. Uh, groceries, uh, and they're not sitting at four point four. What would they be? They're nine point one. I think the number is. Uh, they're that, they're going along. That's the one of the problems. And rent not going up at that rate, but still going up at higher rates. And of course. Uh, for homeowners who have to renew their mortgages, they're seeing their mortgage costs go up. So those are all uh, important parts of this inflation rate, offset by a, a few other things, uh, as I mentioned, including uh, gasoline prices. Uh, we've seen the United States, even when uh, the Bank of Canada paused the interest rates at, at what they currently are, the U.S. decided to keep going. Uh, what, does that say anything about Canada and, and any thoughts on how one wags the other? Yeah, that I was actually a little bit surprised because, of course, the the United States was having the possibility of some serious problems in the banking sector um, and increasing interest rates, I thought, risked uh, worsening that problem. Uh, I do think that we are just slightly out of out of touch with them at the moment, and I don't know how that's going to resolve. In the past, I would have been fairly confident that the way it would have been resolved is that Canada would have increased its interest rates. Uh, But our current progress on the inflation rate uh, we also don't want to damage the economy in other ways. Uh, my guess is that they, they will not do that. So um, I think something that it, and many have been talking for months about a recession and whether this is going to happen or it isn't going to happen or, you know, almost like we're praying for it to happen in the next six months or so. But one thing that's really uncharacteristic here, Michael, is the extremely low uh, unemployment rates still sitting at around 5%, which is historically very low. How does that play into all of this and keeping us on one side of this or the other? 
So you may recall from our previous conversations that I was uh, skeptical about the predictions of recession. Uh, basically, I thought the economy was was going pretty well, that we'd have somewhat of a slowdown, but but nothing like a full-scale uh, recession. And I continue to believe that. Uh, this is the so-called soft landing that is we're hoping for the inflation rate to go down without having to put the economy in a full-fledged recession. And I, I think that's that's still very possible. How long does the soft landing take? How big? How how long will this period be of a soft landing? Are we in the soft landing yet? Well, I think we're starting to get it. After all, the inflation rate was you know seven eight percent, and now it's down to four uh, percent, and and I think it's going to go down somewhat more. I think it's one of those things that we're getting pretty close to the soft landing is is attainable, uh, but where whether we're going to get to a soft landing with inflation at two percent. Uh, I guess that's probably a year away. Uh, G7 happening in Japan this weekend. Do you expect much from an economic standpoint coming out of this? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I think uh, uh, one of the good pieces of news is that mostly the same sorts of positive experiences Canada's had on inflation are mostly reflected around the world. In fact, the United States is a little bit of outlier. They're having a bit more of a problem. Uh, so I don't think that there will be a need for some sort of major coordinated international action. And that's a good thing because those things are hard to do. Do you think we'll get more or new trade out of this summit? Uh, they will always talk about trade, but I don't, I don't think it'll make much difference. Uh, the, uh, we have probably avoided uh, the worst protectionist impulses uh, that, that could have come at this time. Uh, but there will always be this myriad of trade disputes across countries. They're usually not solved at the G7 level, though. They're usually solved on a country-to-country basis. Why is the U.S. having a harder time than us? Uh, I, I think that, that their, uh, their expansion uh, during the, the pandemic period, their, their spending and their monetary policies at that time uh, were actually a little bit more than ours were. And also they started out from a, a weaker overall government uh, budgetary position. Even though the Canadian position isn't great, uh, the U.S. budgetary position is even worse. The United States, uh, particularly federal government, borrows really a lot of money and they have not been able to uh, to cool that down. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yes, you too. Thanks. Michael Veal with us, Professor Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director, Stats Canada Research Data Centre. The annual pace of inflation rose just slightly last month, but um, probably not enough to really make an impact in any way. We were uh, alluding to this earlier on, and I don't know, is this kind of like the vinyl thing? And again, I, I get the attraction of vinyl. I mean, I, I got I still got milk crates at home from the day and all of that stuff. Um, but when people say to me, you know, it's just got a romantic, a, a much more softer feel, a romantic uh, sound to it. No, that's called a turntable rumble. That's distortion you're hearing on vinyl. Uh, and, and, you know, is that what's happening with the attraction of the flip phones? Is it a novelty? Is it you want a blast from the past, a simpler time uh, when we're all much better looking and had a few uh, less inches around our belly. Is that what we're looking for? Or are we really trying to um, digital detox? I like that. Let's bring in Omar Fares, lecturer in the Ted Rogers School of Retail Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Omar, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, thank you for having me. So what's the story here, Omar? Why the attraction to the flip phone? Is it a romantic novelty like, um, you know, a, a, a record player? Or is are people actually trying to detox from their digital lives and all of the interruptions? 
You know, Scott, there are a few factors, I think, their interplay and comes at an interesting time where tech is really picking up. Um, so one, a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit uh, of nostalgia from the general public uh, as to say, well, hey, you know, past simpler times, you know, things were easy. I wish I can have, um, you know, one of those old phones where I, I don't stay connected 24-7 to everyone. Uh, so that's one. But I think one of the big reasons, and it's interesting for me, that Gen Z, which are which is the youngest uh, or the younger generation, is pushing for that move forward. And it has a lot to do with two main factors, digital detox and privacy concerns. Right? Um, so digital detox is that idea of, well, hey, I'm overwhelmed all the time. It has a defined period of time, maybe a day, few weeks, or a few months, where one kind of lowers their involvement with technology in one way or another, if it's flip phones, be it for sure. Uh, so it's step away from that sense of ultimate 24-7 connectivity and kind of do a little bit of cleanup, just like your normal, you know, physiological uh, detox, a digital detox is kind of staying away for a little bit. And the other factor is that privacy concern where I'm sure, you know, maybe you've discussed this before, maybe kind of um, it came around the whole idea of AI and uh, the active integration of AI in every day's life. And there is a lot of concern to how data is being used and um, managed and collected. Uh, a couple of different points you brought up here, Omar. So do you think this is a temporary thing where, you know, it's like the the person that goes for a ride in their classic car, puts the top down, drives around, and then parks it in the garage and leaves it? So is this just, you know, sort of a fix to get away from the digital life? Or is there more, is it more, uh, less temporary, more long lasting? So what I think is in terms of flip phones, the idea of flip phones itself, um, we've seen sales pick up a little bit. It will pick up a little bit more in my projection, uh, but I don't foresee everyone walking around the street with a flip phone. I, I don't foresee that happening. Technology is here and we are adapting and evolving. But what I think is more of a discussion we want to bring up and what we want to have as a long lasting discussion is one's relationship with technology. Right. In more recent times, what we have is a very unhealthy um, general population, including myself, attachment to the technology. Right. And it has significant physiological and psychological risks associated with having that connectivity happening all the time. Right. So I think a discussion we want to post forward here for long term is, well, how do we manage our relationship with technology? including smartphones. So that will be, in my view, is a long-lasting discussion. And if flip phones is the beginning of that discussion, I think it's a good start. Is that what the flip phone is, do you think, for some? It's it's that little escape. It's that uh, it's, it's as um, unconnected as they could be, unplugged as they could be? It's a mechanism, yeah. It's one of the mechanisms I view, uh, in my view, um, is what's happening. Right. We, for starters, yeah, some view it for the nostalgia aspect, which is that idealized version of the past. But for many, it's the idea of, well, let me slow down a little bit, right? Especially with younger generations. And I see this in classrooms all the time with younger generations. That connectivity, that attention span that is constantly decreasing, you know, with the whole idea of the TikTok culture, you know, swiping up every few minutes, every few seconds, if you will. Right. So a lot of people are getting tired of that. So I think it's that 
stepping away. And I think flip phones is that one defense mechanism that appeared, and it's one of the most convenient ones to say, let's revert back. I think that's what's happening. It's just a defense mechanism almost. And how? And as you mentioned earlier, Omar, how bizarre this is happening as we're seeing AI just mm-hmm. even in the last several months in a year go, you know, just expand, uh, uh, you know, to heights we had never even imagined. Is this a reaction to AI? People seeing that this is being, uh, this is taken over as too much. This has become, uh, this is blanketing us. We need some sort of relief here. Yeah, in 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 a way, in a way, um, I think it's it's a combination of factors. But I think with that significant jump we had, and by the way, the jump we had over the last few months in terms of AI advancements, it's it's almost a societal game changer. Um, and there is some fear, you know, even with the whole AI discussion, there are some voices that are calling on the pause of AI development, right? So when you look at this and you see societal fear. I was engaged in so many conversations where I hear it firsthand. Are we going to be replaced? Do we need to step back? What do we do? Right. So it's part of that discussion of that fear of technology and people need to reassess. And from a societal, from a policy perspective, we need to pause and say, well, where do we draw the limits? And on a simple item such as data collection and usage, right? Not so simple of a conversation, if you will, uh, but from a consumer perspective, one can be worried, how is my data being used? My location data, my app usage. Mind you, if your social media engagement, it can now be aggregated using um, uh, language-based models to come at insights in a few seconds. So I think it's part of that mechanism of, well, as individuals, what do we do? And I think um, that's what we see or one of the reasons why we see the emergence of um, flip phones. It's it's interesting the way this has turned or how the tone has changed, Omar. I mean, we remember the days when people would line up for hours or around the block to get the latest smartphone, what have you. And and we were we, we couldn't wait to get our hands on this sort of yeah. thing. Now it seems that we're more fearful of that now than we were the utopian you know vision of what we'd have if we had the latest. Yeah, and and part of it is, you know, technology, and listen, I I research technology, what I do is how do we um, entice technology adoption, but there comes the second piece of the, I guess, the puzzle, where we say, well, as society, are we ready for such innovations, right? We have many technical capabilities, but how do we integrate them? How do we think of jobs? How do we think of the impact on livelihoods, right? We've seen um, the recent, and there's been a lot of discussion on the idea of something like a metaverse, right? Where people get connected using their VR sets and other tools. Now, when we have all of this in place as individuals, I think it's natural to feel some sort of, um, you know, a look at the past and say, well, I still want to connect with people. I still want to go out. And we're seeing this more and more often. You know, it's one of the interesting trends um, post-COVID is uh, mall shopping, right? Uh, we have individual malls are still busy. If you if you go to any mall, malls are still busy. People want to go out there. They still want to shop um, and connect with one another. Maybe the activities differ, but that aspect of connectivity, social connectivity, I think is key. And I think that's part of what's driving that fear. And as a reaction, 
how do we look for ways to tackle this? And I think that's why we have that idea of flip phones. Omar Fares with us, lecturer in the Ted Rogers School of Retail Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. The flip phone, is it the future uh, or just fun? Uh, thanks so much, Omar. Be, bu- uh, be well. Thank you, Scott. Many have talked at length. Uh, we, we certainly remember uh, during the global pandemic, a election called trying to win the prime minister, a majority government that didn't happen, uh, a lesser minority than the one prior to that. And then the next thing you know, a deal between the NDP and the liberals to keep them in power as the party that was once just left of center goes quite a ways to the left and joins the NDP uh, in forming policy or at least influencing that. Uh, interesting article from Campbell Clark, uh, chief political writer in the Globe and Mail today, talking about how the relationship may be fraying a little bit and some in uh, the back um, getting a little annoyed with all of this. Uh, let's bring in Campbell Clark, chief political writer for the Globe and Mail and with us now. Campbell, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. What are the signs to you that things are starting to fray, that uh, it's not as rosy as we may think? Well, it, there's been a number of signs that it's not all that rosy, although fraying may be a bit much because, you know, this is a matter of survival for both the Liberal Party and the NDP, who don't want an election right now. So, you know, that is kind of the imperative that we're dealing with here. But there are some signs that things aren't going perfectly. And one of them is there's a backbencher in the NDP or a member of Parliament from the NDP who's put forward a motion to try to convince Parliament to change the way we look at confidence matters. And as it happens, the NDP had just signed 14 months ago a confidence and supply agreement with the Prime Minister. Now, confidence is a very important convention about whether the Prime Minister stays in power or not. And he's looking to change the rules. You would have thought that would have been an issue that should have come up 14 months ago. There are also, by the way, been other issues that have been happening in the parliament in the last couple of months that, you know, have made it a little bit uneasy in this relationship. Is this a consistent feeling through the party or just uh, the odd member here? Because it seems when we see NDP leader Jagmeet Singh on, uh, whether it's in in question period or anything, he seems to uh, come across like he's asking really tough questions, but then continues to support the government and and really doesn't use uh, the leverage that he does have. Is that because they've got the most power now that they probably would have um, even moving forward? So look, the NDP is doing what smaller parties do in minority parliaments all around the world. They're trying to get some of their agenda through. And uh, people who think that's not right or shouldn't happen, well, they're essentially people that don't like the idea of the Liberal Party staying in power and the NDP being teamed up with them. So, But the NDP is more influential through this. That's certainly something they can argue because they are getting some of their policy uh, ideas put forward. Right? They... uh, they are the next one to come is pharmacare and and that will be you know the critical matter but the it, the things that happen in a sort of smaller sense sometimes annoy backbench members particularly backbench members in smaller parties like the NDP so daniel blakey has put forward this motion because sometimes what governments do especially minority governments do is they pack things into, say, a budget bill and say, this is a matter of confidence. And if you defeat this bill, you will defeat the government and we will go to an election. And sometimes those things are all in sundry. <laughs> it's a way of forcing uh, other parties to vote for it uh, because they don't want to have an election right now. And 
it is true that, you know, in the United Kingdom, for example, there are some restrictions on how confidence uh, motions are used. Daniel Blakey would like to see some kind of definition. Uh, I think NDP members probably would like to see some kind of definition on what can be a confidence motion. He's put forward a motion in the House of Commons to try to limit that. But of course, what governments in power, when I say governments, in this case, I'm talking about the prime minister and his cabinet. What they want is to make sure that if there is a point of contention, a very controversial issue, they have to get through the House of Commons, that they can say, pass this or else, or else we go to election. Uh, does this still, Campbell, does this still benefit both the NDP and the Liberals? And at what point, because at the end of the day, they all want to get elected, too. So uh, at what point does the NDP say, you know what, we've got a chance of forming, a, a, at least forming the opposition here. At what point do they say we can do better on our own? At what point is a really good question, because if you look ahead to the next election, you can be sure one thing is that Canadian voters will be judging this alliance in the rearview mirror. They won't be looking about at how it started. They'll be looking at how it ended and who pulls the plug and what their reasons for doing so are. Uh, so if the liberals manage to put in, say, a poison pill, uh, an unpalatable thing that the NDP can't accept into a budget bill and engineer their own defeat, that will be a point of controversy. If the NDP decide we can't stand these these guys anymore, we're going to pull the plug. And that would probably happen because the Liberals are getting very, very unpopular. That will have a big impact on how people judge it. That has always been the case in these elections. Usually, it's the governing party, the larger party in a minority government that controls more things and they come out of it with their own timing. But not always. If you remember, back in 2004, I'm sorry, 2006, the Liberals had a minority government under Paul Barton, and Jack Layton had supported them on some things with some sort of smaller bill-to-bill deals. He pulled the plug at a very bad time for Paul Barton. Campbell Clark with us, chief political writer for The Globe and Mail, and his latest talking about the relationship between the NDP and the Liberals and their agreement is it's still there. Campbell, thanks, uh, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We talked about during the height of the global pandemic how uh, when people uh, got out and wanted to get back into air travel and such, the issues at airports, passports, and then slowly things uh, get back to normal and now we're starting to see labor uh, disruptions in in many industries uh, post-pandemic. No different for the people of uh, of WestJet, who uh, the pilots have announced that uh, they are, uh, have given no and could be off by the long weekend. What does that mean for you if you have flights booked with WestJet? Let's bring in Gabor Lukacs, President, Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, and with us now. Gabor, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to join you. So uh, is this likely to complicate things more for travelers starting this weekend, Gabor, or are or, um, uh, alterations or alternative uh, flights being arranged? What's likely to happen if this does go through? I anticipate that if there is a strike or a lockout, it is going to be a considerable disruption. Uh, whether we do have a strike or lockout, we'll probably not known until Friday early morning. 
because in labor relations, it's very often that uh, decisions are being made and deals are closed just at the last minute. So it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, at uh, 4.59 uh, Eastern time, they announce the deal. But if there is a strike, it will be a disruption, um, partly because I anticipated WEDGET is not going to actually respect passengers' rights. That's really what we need to focus on, though, in preparation is what rights passengers have and what is the right steps and the right sequence of events to exercise those rights. So until such time as your flight is canceled, you don't really have rights in the sense that just your guess or expectation that the flight might get canceled is not enough reason to give you a right to seek a refund or to get rebooked. You actually have to wait until your flight is canceled. And once it happens, then the airline, Wedget, has an obligation to rebook you uh, or if you choose to, to issue a refund in the original form of payment. The choice is yours, not the airlines. They cannot force a refund on you. Uh, if they are unable to rebook you on their own network within 48 hours, uh, then you have a right to uh, be rebooked on alternate car carriers, which are competitors like Air Canada, Porter, whichever airlines are available. And if the pilots are on strike, then surely Wedget will not be able to rebook you within 48 hours. So if they are just not being responsive, they just shrug and don't get back to you or you cannot even reach them on the phone requesting a rebooking, then I would document it with proof, with audio recording, with video recording of trying to reach them and then go and buy a ticket on a different airline and then send the bill to Wedget and make them pay if necessary in small claims court. Uh, wow, small claims court. We have talked, uh, Gabor, at length about rights of passengers and how Canada has fallen behind compared to others uh, when it comes to this sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, we hear whether it's weather or this, that, or the other reasons for delays, what have you. Is there a set uh, uh, bill of rights or a set of rules if there is a labor disruption? Is there something that specifically, um, you know, focuses on this sort of thing? Or does it just come under the umbrella if the flight gets canceled, here's what you do. So the problem is that in Canada, because Canada has such a subpar regime for passenger protection, which in reality more uh, protects the airlines, um, the uh, flight, the, the labor disputes or, or you know, labor uh, issues like a strike or lockout is actually considered to be outside the carrier's control. This is utterly ridiculous. You know, WestJet can lock out its own employees and then apparently claim that it is outside their control. Hmm. It is just one of the many reasons why the current regime is broken. And uh, the only attempt that has been made so far, the genuine attempt to fix it, is by uh, the NDP transport critic Taylor Buckrock, who actually put forward a private member's bill in uh, March this year. Unfortunately, the government is trying to pass something different to create a, a secretive star chamber-like process uh, for adjudication of passenger airline consumer disputes, where you don't even have proper evidence, you don't have any transparency, you just get the result at the end, and the passenger cannot even share the evidence that the airline disclosed, and the media would not have access to it. So it's really a, a kind of, uh, you know, behind, a kind of, you know, um, how to put it, uh, closed room, uh, mm -hmm. back room deal yeah. type of, of, of uh, process, which we are finding very, very disconcerting. Um, but uh, if 
Canada actually had a proper passenger protection, which is what Mr. Bakrok has been advocating for in his bill C-327, then passengers in this situation would be getting not just meals and hotels on top of rebooking, but also lump sum compensation as it happens in the European Union. So wedged passengers traveling, say, from London or Paris on a wedged flight back to Canada, if their flight is canceled, they have all these rights, meals, accommodation, wow. compensation. <laughs> but if they fly from Canada to Paris or London, the best thing they can Nothing. hope for under the law wow. is a choice between the refund and uh, alternate transportation on a competitor airline. Gabor Lukacs with us, President Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group. Uh, there is a chance WestJet pilots will go on strike by the long weekend. Gabor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. This is, you know, an ongoing issue. And obviously, as a lot of things has been complicated during a post-global pandemic, and, you know, as we've seen with many things, uh, coming out of a global pandemic has uh, certainly emphasized, exaggerated uh, uh, problems that were already there in the first place, whether it's uh, environment, whether it's, sorry, health care or homelessness or what have you. The city of Hamilton's director of housing services says sanctioned tents at yet to be designated sites in Hamilton are aimed at not only keeping track of those experiencing homelessness, in the city, but also offering dignity for those in, that have been relegated to encampments. Uh, with an estimated 100 encampments across the city, it is said that these zone sites with five tents at each location will not only address sheltering needs, but also reduce potential noise complaints, garbage issues, and conflicts within the encampment. To talk more about all of this, Medora Upal is with us, Chief Executive Officer, YWCA Hamilton, and with us now. Medora, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. I am, and, and glad to be with you. Uh, obviously, a very tough situation. Uh, tell us about this solution. How does it work? What do you see happening? Well, I, I think it's a good start to sanction encampments in our city. It's a encampments are not an ideal response in any way to the housing and homelessness challenges we face. But they are a necessary response to provide people the right to housing until as a city and as a community, we can come together and figure out better solutions and create real affordable housing with supports for people who are currently living in encampments. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and I certainly do not pretend to know what the solution here is. But to me, this seems like a temporary Band-Aid solution. And, and my major concern is what happens when the weather gets colder? Yeah, I agree with you, Scott. It's a temporary Band-Aid solution and uh, cold weather, also extreme heat uh, can be extremely uh, risky for people living outside. It's life-threatening. But the reality is if we don't create some kind of safe spaces for people to actually live in the community where they do not have housing options or shelter op options, they do face uh, life and death situations. Uh, simply not enough uh, space in shelters at this point to to house all of these people? Absolutely. Not enough space yeah. to house people. And also some for some individuals, the shelters don't offer the kind of response that they need. 
for example, there's not uh, enough beds or uh, options for couples. Uh, people struggle sometimes in the communal living settings, particularly around their mental health issues and also active substance use. And so we don't have the right solutions for everybody in the current system, and we have a shortage of beds. Uh, again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. How does the tent system alleviate those issues? So the tent system doesn't necessarily alleviate the issues, but it provides people with a stable place to to live where services can come in, people can come in and provide supports. One of the big challenges we faced even pre-pandemic was people were moving around and scattered throughout the city. And we had difficulty actually locating people in order to offer them the kinds of intensive services that they needed just because we couldn't track them down. When we did, they were often in the crisis of trying to figure out where they were going to go next. And that became very difficult then to provide health care and other types of options to respond to their needs. So this is this is a better solution than what we've had previously, but it is not a long-term or permanent solution in any way. How close are we to having enough shelters bed, a shelter space for everybody? I think we're fairly far from that. Uh, so I, I don't have the exact number and I'm hesitant always to put a number because when we put a number on it, we also uh, find out that there's actually more people who are experiencing homelessness than we understood. Um, we tend to, as, as a community, undercount the problem of the uh, facing the unhoused and, and people who are homeless. And there's an increasing pressure on people living um, in, in housing right now that are being pushed out and into homelessness. So I think it's a growing problem and it's hard to put a number on that shelter. But I do know we need a significantly more uh, greater investment into affordable housing solutions. And again, deeply affordable with supports in place to address the shelter pressures. Are we doing enough to provide that shelter space? I know this has always been a challenge, just talking to the various organizations throughout the city over the years and such. Uh, it's always been a need. It's always been a challenge. It's always been a struggle to try to find space and, 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 and what people need uh, in these shelters and such. Uh, are we focusing enough on that and, and expanding that in order to, uh, to accommodate? No, I think we could be doing more to invest in emergency shelter and transitional housing responses, particularly for women and women with children. We do not have enough. We are far from it. And it's going to take uh, a political will and a financial investment in order to make that happen. We need more shelters, but we also need the affordable housing solutions. And what we find with government is often they struggle um, to understand how to do both uh, because there's no no one level of government has all the money to make it happen. So there's a lot of uh, collaboration that needs to take place across uh, different levels of government. What happens after the tent community? Is there, would there be something in place? This is temporary. And then the next step into a shelter or into treatment or whatever it is that, that somebody needs. Yeah, I, I think we have to really focus in our work on that piece of what is that next step? How do we create it? What are the opportunities to build and to develop uh, more housing, but also then to address the uh, bed shortage issue? So it, it for some people in the tents, it will be a transitional or emergency shelter response, a temporary space for them to land uh, to do 
more get more supports that they need in order to be housed successfully. And for other people, um, housing with supports will be the next step for them and the right option. Why is this so bad now? As I've said, it's always been an issue. Why? Why is it where it is now? Well, I think the uh, social safety net has huge gaping holes and people have been falling through them for years. And the problem is getting worse. We do not have the kinds of public policies we need uh, in order to create a a strong social uh, safety net that protects people, helps them keep housed, and also helps them get the health care and other types of support services that they need in the community. And reality is social services are are, we don't have a basic income and social services are so low uh, that people can't survive and live anymore on the funding that they receive. What about employment opportunity? Are we doing enough there? Yeah, I think there's a lot we could be doing in terms of employment opportunities for people. Uh, training, training options, skilling, uh, you know, there's creative ways of bringing jobs to people who have a lot of barriers to employment, but it takes, again, it's another piece of the funding formula that needs to be integrated into these longer term solutions. Only got a few seconds left, Medora. What stage is all of this at now? Well, my understanding is that uh, it's going to council tomorrow in the emergency and community services or or GIC, I believe. Uh, so I don't work for the city, but I believe it's going to some form of committee of council, and we'll see if they approve uh, the encampment protocol. Medora Upo with us, Chief Executive Officer, YWCA in Hamilton, the City of Hamilton's Director of Housing, looking at sanctioned tents uh, yet to be designated areas aimed at keeping track of those experiencing homelessness in the city. Medora, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thank you, Scott. Justice Minister David Lametti tabled new legislation uh, aimed at making it harder for repeat violent offenders to be granted bail through a handful of targeted uh, criminal code reforms. What is different now? Let's bring in Jeff Manishin, criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney, and with us now. Jeff, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, yes. Just fine, Scott. How about you? Uh, So far, so good, Jeff. We've talked about this a few times. Before we get too deep into it, what's different today uh, as opposed to last week? What is new here? Well, in terms of what's new, first of all, this is what's been proposed by the Justice Minister, so it hasn't yet been passed. But here's what's new. Number one, the normal term in terms of what the justice has to consider for bail, there are a number of factors. One of them is whether the accused has been convicted previously of a criminal offense. But it now specifies including an offense in which violence was used, threatened, or attempted. Okay, that's number one. Number two, there are a series of sections or features where it's what's called a reverse onus, where the accused has to show why his detention or her detention is not justified. So it's putting it on the accused to have to show that. And they've added some offenses where if the accused is charged with that, he or she is going to have to show why detention isn't justified, including uh, possession of a restricted or prohibited firearm with ammunition, breaking in or a robbery to steal a firearm, or trafficking in weapons. Another one for reverse onus, if the accused was bound by a prohibition order, where previously he was prohibited from possessing any firearm or weapon or ammunition, could be reverse onus, they've added to that, or if he's been previously released on conditions, like on bail with a term saying don't possess weapons, now reverse onus. And the last one is, for a domestic matter, if there had been previous conviction, that's a factor to consider. Now it's if there's a conviction or a discharge meaning a finding of guilt, but there wasn't a conviction, that can be added in. 
Those are all offenses uh, where, uh, uh, and, and in addition, any kind of other offense where the person had a prior conviction with violent offenses in their past, then that too is a reverse onus. So that's largely what they've done, uh, Scott, is added offenses for which it's going to be on the accused to show why he, should, he or she shouldn't be detained. Is this going back to where we once were, or is this brand new, Jeff? I think the way that I'd phrase it, Scott, and that's a great question, because in 2019, Parliament's amended the provisions for bail to, I'd essentially say, to relax it somewhat, to allow for greater yeah. potential for release. And that was based on the Supreme Court of Canada decision and lots of studies saying too many people were being incarcerated pending trial. And it was really getting to the realm of infringing somebody's right to bail, not to be denied bail without proper cause. What this is, these are a couple of incremental moves back, but I wouldn't call them huge. I really wouldn't. I mean, I, there was a lot of hue and cry from premiers across the country to say you have to change the bail. I don't think the justice minister wanted to go back and reverse all the studies that have been done and what the Supreme Court of Canada said, because there were a couple of cases that were bad. But he wanted to come up with a response saying, look, I'm listening and I'll make some of the changes that you have in mind. So he's added some additional offenses to reverse onus. That's really largely what he's done. We've talked about this in the past, Jeff, and you pointed out that, uh, you know, bail's there for a reason. These people have not been convicted yet. And uh, there's a lot of innocent people sitting in there waiting for uh, for their trials and such. That being said, this, uh, and it seemed what the complaints were from the provinces, is this was happening with the repeat offenders, people that should not have been uh, out or should not have had this opportunity. So uh, is, is this better than the other situation? Because, again, uh, you spoke before about how you, you, know, you can't really hold people if, if, if there isn't a trial and, and such, but this seemed to be more focused around repeat offenders. Is that accurate? Well, uh, it, that's part of it, certainly. But, but the idea of somebody with a record, okay, who had a record for violent offenses in the past, a justice piece would hear or a judge would hear that anyway. And that certainly is a factor that a judge or justice would have considered anyway. For, so fine, it's now specifically included in the list. And okay, we've got some other offenses. I don't know, Scott, that these changes are going to make a huge difference, and we're going to see a lot more people incarcerated now than we would have before. Think of it as a, just a sharper focus on essentially violent-related offenses, firearm-related offenses, and say, okay, we're going to make it somewhat, it's going to make it tougher for the person to get out. It won't mean the person can't get out. But, Scott, you know, I'd ask the question this way, and this is a true story. As recently as a few weeks ago, I had somebody who was incarcerated from a bail hearing where the JP made a real mistake, just wrong in law. And I brought a bail review to suggest that it's like an appeal. And I ultimately got the accused out. The Crown agreed with me. There was a real error on the part of the justice piece. This guy had no record charge for some serious offenses, not weapons, serious offenses. I asked my client what it was like in Maplehurst. That's one of the provincial holding facilities. It was three people in a cell meant for two. So one of them sleeping on the floor for every night of the 40 days he was in there. And when the cell flooded, he was kind of stuck. When there was a lockdown because of security-related reasons, 24-7 in the cell, can't use the phone, garbage not picked up. That's what life is like Mm. when you're awaiting trial presumed innocent. And so I'd like to hear what all the premiers are going to say. Now they got their tougher bail. What are they going to do to add resources for the holding facilities? I haven't heard that part. Uh, Are you happy with this or better this way or not? I tend not to react emotionally. So it's not one, Scott, that I react happy or sad. It it is a change that I didn't personally feel was necessary, but a lot of premiers did. 
the minister of justice was still very concerned for the balance between the public confidence in our bail system, but also recognizing people under the charter have the right to bail. That certainly public has to be confident, and the confidence is eroded when somebody should have been detained because of risk to public safety and got out. But the public confidence is also undermined when the accused people are unnecessarily detained. So what I think, the thing I'm, I'm happy about, if you want to use that, that word, is I'm happy that the Minister of Justice used a very careful consideration of the balancing factors to try and be responsive to the premiers without losing sight of the importance of reasonable bail. That's, yeah. that's, a, tr- that's a credit to the Minister of Justice. Jeff Manishin with us, criminal lawyer, Rossin McBride, former Crown Attorney. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, you too, Scott. Always a pleasure. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. You know, this is kind of sad when uh, you think about it, and especially where we've all come, where our parents came from, our grandparents, great-grandparents, however however you want to package it. But uh, this is fascinating. In 2012, only 37% of Canadians surveyed by nanos thought that their kids would have a lower standing of living, standard of living, than themselves. By 2022, similar poll, this time by Pew Research, pegged the number closer to 75%, an increasing number of Canadians seem resigned to be believing that the next generation will be worse off than us or certainly not as better. And to talk more about all of this, uh, Waleed Hajazi is with us, Professor of Economic Analysis and Policy, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, and with us now. Waleed, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, and it's great to be with you, Scott. This is, uh, is this the sad reality, Waleed? You know, my, my mother, like so many, came here uh, with a suitcase and the clothes on her back uh, way back when after the war and, and, and set up house here and, and worked like a dog and made the life and living that she had that allowed us to go to post-secondary and, and, and move on as, as kids and stuff. Are, are we just to assume that the next generation won't progress as much as the last did? Is, is that where we are now? That's exactly where we're at. The data all support it. Like your mother, my parents came to Canada 80 years ago to provide a better life for us. And unfortunately, you look at all of the trends and the expectations of people and the resign to the fact Canada's slipping in its prosperity, but we can change it around. But to your point, Scott, it's exactly what's happening. People are giving up on that dream that their kids are going to be better off than they were. How do we get here? Yeah, so if you go back to Canada's 100th birthday in 1967, Canada was the third, third richest country in the world. In 2017, on our 150th birthday, we were 14th. We went from third to 14th, and in the next 25 years, we're going to drop to 23. And there's three or four reasons for it. Number one, there's lots of government bureaucracy that smothers the ability of individuals to pursue their entrepreneurial endeavors. That's a big one. So what ends up happening is when people have this idea to do something really innovative or really productive, Scott, many of them can't do it in Canada, so they leave. And one Mm. thing that's lost on a lot of people is we're a country of immigrants. But what we don't see 
is how many people that arrive in Canada actually leave in their first year because they find it's very hard to pursue their dreams. Continue on with uh, some more reasons. You said government smothering us and just not the opportunity. What else? Yeah, that's, that's one. The other big one has to do with um, access to capital, meaning that whenever someone needs to get access to capital in order to finance their operations or to grow their businesses, in Canada, there's a real difficulty in accessing that capital, and that's why these banks from the U.S. set up shop in Canada to help these companies. So that's the second That's the second big reason. The third big reason has to do with protectionism. And you know, Scott, you can just ask your listeners, who likes their cell phone companies? Why does Canada, why do we pay some of the highest rates in the entire world for cell phone and Internet? For what reason? Why do we pay some of the highest rates for air transportation, for flights? Why? was Pearson Airport rated the worst airport in the world last year. All of this has to do with protectionism. So those are the three biggest reasons. Government bureaucracy, access to capital, and the fact that the government is protecting all of these oligopolies or these companies that are not delivering the services that Canadians deserve, and they're making us pay a lot more than we should be. All of these things result in a huge drag on Canadian productivity and prosperity. Uh, Many would say that Canada does not build, produce, whatever, uh, sell, export what it used to. Um, Yet, as you're talking about the lack of entrepreneurship or the spirit here in this country, the government uh, employees, the the government itself is is expanding or bloating by 30 percent. So it seems we're going in a wrong direction here. Um, Even if you look at something like home ownership, which is obviously unattainable right now, but isn't that one of the greatest ways to personal wealth is to be able to start and afford a home. And that's sort of the center of a dream of a family. You want to have a family, buy a home, and because of all of the policies implemented by successive governments. So, Scott, I don't want to say this is a liberal or a conservative or an NDP. These are governments through the last 30 years have been implementing policies. You just mentioned a big one. The fact that the government bloated itself and increased, you know, $100 billion of additional expenditures for new, for more government employees, but that's not what we need. What we need is governments to invest in those materials. And in our book, we talk about these four pillars that governments should be investing in that would really allow us to turn around this great ship. All right, and that book is called Everybody's Business, How to Ensure Canadian Prosperity Through the 21st Century. Joining us is Walid Hajazi, Professor of Economic Analysis and Policy, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. Walid, a fascinating discussion. We'll chat again. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
Thank you so much. You take care. We remember that uh, there was a lot of pomp and circumstance when the big uh, Stellatus deal was signed and um, and declared down in Windsor, uh, and then all of a something, all of a sudden, something went horribly wrong. The plant that was under construction to build the EV batteries um, they stopped construction because apparently, from what the company said, is that the government has not delivered on its promises, uh, i.e., cash. Um, it's surprising that this is happening at this point, or is it now in the wake of the VW deal? Is this the case a, a case of the government not living up to its deal, or that the company wants more considering what VW got? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great, thank you. So what is this, Marvin? Is this uh, the government not sending the check, or is this the company wanting more money after they got wind of what uh, VW got? Well, uh, I'm not sure we know exactly, because, of course, we're only hearing one side of the story. Uh, Over the last few years, there have been a number of announcements around electric vehicles, whether it was assembly plants with Ford and and, uh, General Motors and now batteries. And the typical deal in these cases is that you get some um, cash, we'll call it towards capital, which is the construction. In the Stellantis deal, it was $500 million from Ottawa. There was also some money from Ontario. The comment is that we're going to uh, uh, more or less stop construction of the plant because the federal government has reneged on the deal. Well, my question is, how have they reneged? The only thing they promised you was capital dollars. Normally, the federal government is very good at sending you that check. You're not blaming Ontario. So that says Ontario's done its thing. Uh, On the surface, it just seems to me like an interesting mix-up because this normally works. Having said that to you, if we go back to the Volkswagen deal, there, along with giving them capital dollars, they've also given them a subsidy, an operating subsidy, so that when they actually start making the batteries, there's going to be additional cash down the road. And in fact, if they make a lot of batteries, it could be as much as 13 billion, that's with a B, $13 billion. So is this Stellantis saying, you know, we we should have waited, signed the deal a little later, there would have been more money because you would have matched the, the various subsidies we were going to get from the federal government in the United States, or is this just a, a, a mix up otherwise? Uh, Now, the good news is they are still fairly early in construction. We're not down to the fine details. So this pause could be done without necessarily setting everything back. I guarantee you, uh, Ottawa has jumped into high gear to try to figure out. And I will say, to be candid with you, I won't be surprised if there's a modification to the deal. In other words, oh, sorry, we got this wrong. By the way, not only are we going to give you that $500 but we got something else for you down the road. Because... The government wants this factory very, very badly. And I had one auto expert say that this was fair, considering that this deal was going on. They would have known that these other things were in the works as well, so that this would have to have been updated. That being said, I found it interesting. The industry ministry saying, uh, minister saying that, you know, we're continuing on and negotiating in good faith and da 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 And I think most people would say negotiating. My goodness, they're building the factory. This should be done. Why are we in the negotiating stage? Well, keep in mind that the the first deal that was signed was before this um, uh, Invest in America Act the United States did. uh, I guess it's called the Inflation Reduction Act that America did. And and therefore, it was just a straight, here's some money up front to help you build the factory. Thus, I think what you're going to hear probably in the next week or two 
is we'll call it 2.0 version 2.0. Uh, yes, we're still going to give you that money to help you build the factory. But oh, guess what? We have some subsidies for you. And in exchange, they're going to have to have uh, Stellantis give them something. Maybe they'll uh, have a bigger volume that they'll produce or they'll do it for a longer period of time. So it'll be a, a revision under this term. But uh, I, I think um, going public like this, Stellantis is trying to put more pressure on the federal government, i.e. we give up less and get more. And we'll just see how it all turns out. It seems the feds and the provinces aren't on the same page where they once were. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Stellantis is not blaming Ontario. They're blaming the feds. Yet it seems to be the feds that are shaking down Ontario. Well, you give them some more money. What's going on? <laughs> well, <coughs> go back to the Volkswagen deal. Uh, it is only the federal government that is giving the operating subsidies. So both the federal government and the provincial government, the Ontario provincial government, are contributing to the capital cost. Uh, and that same thing is true with Stellantis. But now they're talking about the operating. Uh, look, I think what Ontario is doing is also covering itself. Uh, it says, look, we, we've done our part of this. Well, I don't understand what's going on here. This comes as a surprise to us. Uh, I don't think Ontario will kick in anymore. I don't think uh, Doug Ford wants to get involved in the operating subsidies. So I think, again, he's trying to he's also trying to put pressure on the federal government. We want this. We want this for the people of of Windsor. What are you going to do, federal government? He's trying to isolate them to make them come forward. And I think they will blink and they will come forward. Uh, is it worth making these sorts of investments in these companies? We're hearing that debate a lot, especially after the VW deal. Yet we all remember during the pandemic, we were all crying that we didn't make vaccine anymore because we're not creating enough incentives to have big pharma here. And now, of course, we have more of that. So are, are, do we want both sides of the fence here? Uh, are, is it a good idea to offer these incentives? Um, generally speaking, speaking as a business school professor, I get worried that uh, is the only reason why this factory coming here to get the government cash. And I turn that around. Then when the government cash goes away, does that mean they'll go away at the same thing? So you would typically like these businesses to be supported based on their own merits. Having said that, we do compete against other countries in the world. And the biggest one is the United States. Uh, we have all heard about uh, factories that were packing up and moving from Canada to go to the United States, usually because they get sweetheart deals from the individual states, more so than the federal cash. But one of the things that Mr. Biden did in this Build Back Better bill is to say, look, the, the federal government wants, the federal government of the United States wants its share of the electric car market. And so we are prepared to pony up cash. The minute they change the terms, then if Canada is going to compete, it's got to be ready to do that. So I'm not completely in favor of it, but it's an imperfect world. And if we don't do this, this could all go to the United States and we'd be shut out. So uh, I, I think some of it is fine. The trick is to find that balancing point. Uh, we've heard the, uh, well, many politicians talk about end-to-end -end production on this. We just don't want to be assembling them or or paying for these plants. We want to be in in the production of, of the minerals or the batteries or, or all of uh, the ingredients that are needed here to, to, to fulfill this industry. Are we ready? Can we crank up the mines the way it's sort of, oh, we're just going to go to this and do that and do whatever and blah, 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 blah. I, I still think uh, one of the, the elephants in the room here is the mining industry. Am I accurate? Yeah, no, you're not wrong at all. So the uh, a different minister, this is the provincial minister, Vic Fideli, said that we would like, meaning we mean Ontario, would like to be part of that. Uh, let's let's mine the lithium here. Let's refine the lithium here. Let's turn it into the 
ingredient in those batteries called lithium hydroxide. The problem is at the moment, we do not have a lithium mine in Ontario. There is a lithium mine in Quebec. There's another lithium mine that's recently opened in uh, Manitoba, but we don't have one in Ontario. And it's not completely clear to me that we have any uh, reserve or any land that is the, the proper constituency to turn up this lithium hydroxide. So uh, I, I think it'll be great if Mr. Fideli can go up and find it and give them incentives. But I'll also tell you, Scott, that typically from the time you announce uh, a mine to the time that you actually start mining in Ontario is at least 10 years because you have to do the environmental assessments and deal with the various red tapes and the appeals and the tribunals and the hearings. Mr. Fideli has said he'd like to see this all happen within a year. Well, okay, Ontario. I mean, if you want it and you want to cut all that red tape for them, more power to you. I, I just don't see it. I think the best we could hope is that the lithium would be mined some other place, maybe like Quebec, but then refined and processed here in Ontario. I think that's possible. I'm not sure we can actually find the reserves and start mining it here too. Uh, I would say it would seem that mining would be just as difficult as it is it is trying to mine or, or harvest fossil fuels. I mean, the same the same sort of obstacles are there. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that, I mean, there there are two ways of doing mining. One is uh, we're familiar with this with other minerals what they call open pit, where you basically take off the topsoil and there's the reserve of the stuff right there and you start digging it out of the ground and then you have things to worry about. The other kind is a bit like fracking in which the minerals are underground and you then use water to dissolve the lithium. Lithium is very active. So you dissolve the lithium out of the land and mm. then pump it up and extract it that way. Very uh, water intensive. In both cases have great chances for pollution. Now, I'm not sure which one they would do, because again, at this point, I don't think we have any volume of lithium uh, here in, in Ontario that has at least been discovered to date. There are some other minerals they need that could come out of that ring of fire, but we've talked about the ring of fire in northern Ontario for yeah. 20 years, haven't moved it farther. We haven't even got a road punched mm. up to the area so that you can get the chromium and the nickel and the manganese out. So I, I'll be I, good that they're saying these things, but I am quite skeptical to be able to make anything happen quickly. Marvin Ryder, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. This one via Frank on email. Now, wait a minute. On whether today's young up-and-comers can't expect to be better off than their parents were during our years upon reaching childhood, uh, Frank writes... Many of us middle-aged to seniors had a lot less, by far, on our way up the ladder to gain our prosperity. It certainly didn't happen overnight. The phrase of the day was, buckle down, you'll get there sooner than later, by self-disciplining yourself, working long and hard to meet your goals. And many of us ultimately did so with that basic formula. 